0: All right. How are y'all doing? We're not going to have another opportunity tonight, probably, just because of how the service is going to end, but can we thank our band, like, tonight? They were incredible. Thank you, guys. A lot of them are right over there. So grateful. Sometimes at Good Friday, it's a little... People are like, should we clap? It It feels like we're... It feels like we're cosplaying a funeral in a way. It's, like, a little bit, like, somber, but we know how the... We know how it resolves. It's like the second time you watched Star Wars or the second time you watched, um, you know, The Sixth Sense or something with a big cliffhanger, like uh, what do you call the unexpected twist? Like a twist at the end. And, and, And you know the twist. We know the twist. You know, we know that what we are sad about tonight finds its ultimate absolute resolution by Sunday morning, and that's great. But we're still sad. In a way, and I want to sort of talk about that tonight with this message. I've got, um, you know, 25 minutes or so to talk about this with you. And I just want you to leave here with a better understanding, not just of the logistics and practical stuff about crucifixion. You'll get some of that tonight. But I want to really talk about what what all of it means. And when we say the cross can change your life, what are we talking about? Because I know people come. And maybe you're not, like, all in with Jesus, Yet, I always like to throw in yet because I'm an optimist. Maybe you're not there yet, but you come to the story because you're working through questions or you've come this weekend out of some courtesy to someone that you care about and they begged you to come and here you are. Whatever it was that got you here, I'm grateful. Um, We used to have the hardest time getting people to come to Good Friday services. And now it's the worst weather we've had in months and everyone came. And for seven years, no one came to Good Friday And little did we know that all it took was bad weather and no parking in the museum district (laughs) to get you here. Amazing, amazing how that works. That's why we do communion this way, because we never had this many people before. It was just like a little family affair, and now it's like a packed house, which is great. So um, we might tweak our plan next year. I don't know. Uh, But I, I love coming around the tables together. Whatever it was that brought you here, however you got here, I'm glad you're here, especially if you're not all in with Jesus yet. Especially if you find yourself, when Christians go crazy about the cross, when Christians can't stop talking about nothing but the blood of Jesus, and you're like, that's weird. Okay, that's weird. Why the obsession with blood? Why do you want to be covered in it? Why do you want to bathe in it? Why do you think it makes you clean? It's blood. Like, I understand. And for years, and I promise you, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, for years, I wondered why Christians centralized the cross as some, kind of a, um, as some kind of a punishment Jesus had to take for us. And I just thought there had to be a better way. If God can do anything, why couldn't he just forgive us some other way than, than that? It didn't make sense to me, but in recent years, Good Friday and the cross have clicked for me. And I don't know, in some small way, I hope to help this click for you tonight as well. So what I want you to know first about crucifixion is that the Romans who crucified Jesus did not invent crucifixion. They just perfected it, if you want to call it that. They made it what we think of when we think of crucifixion. But other cultures for many, many years, centuries, had crucified people. They just didn't do it like we think of Jesus being crucified. Um, so the Assyrians, Babylonians, even on one historical occasion, there was uh, there's some evidence that Jewish leaders crucified some people um, in the generations prior to Jesus. But in those days, prior to Rome, crucifixion was almost exclusively akin to like the stocks that you would put a criminal in in a public square. There was no nails and no death, even for most of crucifixion's history before Rome. What there was, was just a cross that you would tie a criminal to, like you would put a criminal in the, in the stocks, and then everybody would make fun of them for a, a certain amount of time. And then when their time was up in the stocks or on the cross, they were tied to the cross. The earliest references to crucifixion historically uh, talk about there being a seat or like a, 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 a pole or something to sit on, like, they would sit sideways and, and kind of awkwardly, like, like uh, senior picture, like, I don't know. Is that how you took your senior picture? But you didn't die until the Romans took this uh, crucifixion idea, and of course, because they were known for being so bloodthirsty and gory, because they wanted to scare people into submission to Rome, they took crucifixion and upped the ante. And so that's when you started seeing, historically, victims of crucifixion being stripped naked, So it was um, even more shameful when your friends and family and neighbors and whoever came by and saw you there, you were stripped naked first. And then later, um, they started doing mass crucifixions. There are references to multiple, like dozens of crosses uh, lining Roman roads. Um, and, And eventually, it became an execution mechanism. By the time of Jesus, obviously, it was well known to be an execution mechanism where they wouldn't let you down after a few days or a few hours and let you go home or send you to prison or whatever and just spend the rest of your time. Like, no, you died on the cross by the time Jesus walked the earth. And then they introduced nails and things like that. And, and oftentimes they would just leave your body up there for scavengers and folks to come and, and uh, you know, your worst enemy to come and, and poke and prod or a predator animal would, would come and, and uh, devour you in some way or another. It was not a pretty uh, sight. Okay, so this is the reality of crucifixion by the time Jesus walked the earth. um, There is evidence that tens of thousands at least, probably hundreds of thousands of people were crucified in Rome. Crucifixion was a daily, probably, maybe it's an exaggeration to say daily, monthly at least uh, reality or event throughout the Roman Empire and not just in Jerusalem. The only people who were crucified in Rome were non-Roman citizens, outsiders. That included Jesus. Jesus. And, uh, and so that's why he was, uh, one of the reasons he was crucified. You also had to be convicted of a pretty serious crime against Rome. Um, so Jesus was convicted of uh, not just religious heresy, his crime was sedition. He called himself a king in Rome when there's only one king, right? It was, he was an insurrectionist, uh, to use another word. And so that was the, the actual crime that ended up uh, with him on the cross. Okay, so we're gonna get into this uh, passage today. This is from Luke chapter 23 because y'all know we are addicted to Luke right now at the at the Story Church. In addition to being our Good Friday service and sermon, this is part 20 of 22 in our series "A Physician and the Facts." We're looking at at this first century physician named Luke, and and I want to know what his actual particular perspective was of the cross. So it starts in uh, chapter 23, verse 8. Chapter 23, verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. That's a surprise, that he would be greatly pleased. I thought they were enemies, but no, Herod had been waiting. For a long time, it says, for a long time, Herod had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about Jesus, from what Herod had heard about Jesus, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and the soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. I'm not real sure what Herod's deal is here. It seems like he wanted a magic show, and he was used to people performing on demand for him. And he was like, "Hey, answer this, smart guy!" And Jesus didn't say a word. And Herod, it seems to me, I might be reading too far into this. Herod had, like, maybe little man syndrome going on, or something. I don't. This is not about size. This is about mind and and just you know what little man syndrome is. It's like he is the puffed up kind of guy who, when you step on his ego a little bit, he freaks out because Jesus just ignores his question and refuses to to jump when he says jump. And Herod, who was pleased to see him. But the start of this turns on him by the end of these few verses. So that kind of gives you a sense of how insecure and small a man, Herod, was. Okay, let's keep reading. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. Those are the charges. I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown in prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" For the third time, he spoke to them, "Why? What crime has this man committed? I found no in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him." But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and uh, the one they asked for—that's Barnabas, I mean Barabbas—and uh, uh, and surrendered Jesus to their will. And then uh, finally, this last little section of uh, verses 26 and 27 is pretty key. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon of Serene, from Serene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. I'm going to, just as a quick aside, ask somebody in the back to turn the air off. Can I get an amen from the ladies? (laughs) I hear people catching colds as we sit here. And they do that because I sweat so much, they have mercy on me in the back, and they're like, just turn on the air, but I'm doing okay so far. Okay. So, what is going on in this passage? Uh, three gospel writers out of the four mention Simon from Serene. And it's interesting, um, and I think the assumption is that Simon of Serene was chosen to carry Jesus' cross for him because he was obviously not a Roman citizen. For whatever reason, he was dressed different, he looked different. Serene was a region, is a region in present-day uh, Syria or Libya, northern Africa. So this man was traveling to Jerusalem. He was probably a Jew by some heritage or connection because Jews had uh, immigrated from uh, the Jerusalem Judean area into Cyrene, uh like several generations before this. But he was not one of us in terms of the Roman perspective. So that's why he was chosen but why did Jesus need help? That's always been a question for me. Like in every passion play I've seen or in like the Mel Gibson movie, Jesus just kind of tuckers out. He's just, he's just done. He's, he's had too much. He's been beat up. He's been humiliated and, and uh, kicked around. And so he just can't carry his cross anymore. I don't know if that's the reason. None of the gospels say that Jesus was tired. It could be that they made another man carry Jesus's cross Um, behind him and made him walk in front as another means of shame. It's like not only is this guy a criminal on death row, deserving of death, an insurrectionist, a false prophet or a false king, he's not even strong enough to carry his own cross. I don't know if that's the case, if that's really what the deal was or not, but that's, I think, the best hypothesis. The better question for me is why did Three of the four gospel writers mention Simon as part of the story. If it put Jesus to more shame, why add that to the story? It seems like an unnecessary detail, especially the name. All three of them mention Simon from Serene by name. And Mark's gospel mentions his two sons who were with him by name, Rufus and Alexander. Anytime you see name drops like this in the New Testament, in key stories like this, it's because If you were a first century Christian or someone who was kicking the tires of Christianity and you wanted information about what had really happened and the letters you were getting from some unknown guy named Paul or whatever that wasn't enough for you, if you read in one of those letters or in one of those gospels, hey, Simon, this guy from Serene, And Rufus and Alexander, his boys, they were there that day. Simon carried his cross. If you want to know what that was like, go ask him. He's probably right over there, you know, standing in your church with you, or he'll be through town one of these days, and you'll be able to talk to him. The church was a small community relatively then, and so dropping names was a meaningful thing. And in the New Testament letter of Romans, Rufus is mentioned by Paul as one of the leaders in the church, and in 1941, archaeologists found in a, a Jewish tomb, a cave, uh, uh, where, like a crypt, a family crypt that belonged to Jews who lived in Serene, they found a bone box, uh, an ossuary, uh, that has the following words on it uh, This is Alexander, son of Simon. And the bones were dated to around the year 70 AD. So about 40 years after Simon carried Jesus's cross, part of the way for him, Simon's son Alexander passed away and had this. This is obviously uh, not an ironclad. I mean, there were probably other people named these names, but this seems very, very uh, suggestive that these people obviously lived and were part of the church in and around Jerusalem, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, the part of the cross that Simon carried for Jesus uh, wasn't unlike what you've seen in the movies. I love this cross. This cross is made from the gymnasium floor of where the story was born. By the way, if you ever wondered, it was actually, it's still on the base of it. It still has a three-point stripe on it. Um, And, uh, and so if you're thinking about how Simon of Cyrene would have carried Jesus' cross, it wasn't like he was dragging the back end of it, like the whole thing. It's not how Romans uh, crucified people. They just carried the cross beam. The vertical post stayed in the ground, and there were multiple vertical posts along the busy parts of the city streets because crucifixion was so common. They reused the vertical posts and they would, uh, the the victims or the convicts would carry the horizontal posts, and they would attach the horizontal posts to the vertical posts after attaching the criminal to the uh, the horizontal posts. Does that make sense? So that was probably 100 to 150 pounds, just to give you some idea of uh, how that might have felt to carry Jesus's cross, okay? Let's keep reading from Luke 23, verse 32 to 38. The other two men... I'm sorry, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, So you get some of the clues of what I've been talking about. They were crucified naked. His clothes were taken from him. And there were multiple crucifixions happening at once. This was not just a one-time thing when three guys were crucified together. This was probably common. There were probably others outside of them, if you really want to be real about it. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One, The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, from the Roman perspective, Jesus' crucifixion fit the bill. He was flogged like other criminals were flogged probably 39 times with the flagrum leather whips uh, that had uh, all kinds of glass shards and rocks and things uh, tied into them that pulled at the flesh. And that's one thing that the Mel Gibson movie actually got really, really uh, accurate, absolutely horrific. And Jesus got special treatment because he was supposedly a king. And so they put the the velvet sort of uh, robe on him, if you remember that part of the story, and they beat him with a king's staff and things like that. But But then when they got to the cross uh, is where things, I think, are interesting for people that might not know exactly how this must have looked. Some of you grew up in church, you heard the song um, The Old Rugged Cross. Anybody? It starts with the great line, on a hill far away, that's a sweet song. But that first line, it's not exactly how it happened, right? I don't mean to ruin that song for you. You can still sing it. Just skip the first line, okay? So it wasn't on a hill far away. The Romans always crucified people in the city or around the city on busy streets because the point of it was humiliation and intimidation, not just of the one they're killing, but other people. They wanted everybody to see, and they wanted others to pass by and make fun of them as they died a horrific death, which, according to Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 39, is exactly what happened. They passed by insulting him. The other thing that's oftentimes misunderstood about the crucifixion is just how he hanged there, how Jesus and others hanged there. You probably have heard this, that the nails couldn't have gone through the hands and held a man up on the cross. It's probably more likely that they were hanged on the cross in a different position, probably with arms wrapped around, either like you see here. Uh, here it shows ropes, but imagine nails coming in through the back, through the wrists, through the back of the cross. Or if you can imagine the arms reaching around this way with the cross sort of here, that would put the weight bearing on the shoulders, um, and uh, which would make more sense physically, and the nails would go through here or here. Um, The other misnomer about the nails is I think most Christians have an idea there were three nails. I think there's like songs about how there were three nails. It's unlikely that there were just three nails. It's more likely based on history and archaeology that there were four nails because um, I've always wondered how you drive one nail through two feet and that's not exactly how it happened. We know this because they've uncovered, again, bones and artifacts um, like this foot bone of a uh, first century crucifixion victim or criminal that died, a, a convict that died a, 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 and was crucified, and the nail is coming through his ankle bone from the side. And so it's more likely that the cross, the vertical beam, like this, the two feet straddled the vertical beam, and the nails came in through the side. I can't that part, just uh, the excruciating pain of that. All of it sounds horrific, but I don't know why that part just really sends a shiver down my spine. All of your weight that's not born up here is bearing down on those nails. It's just, I can't, and I'll tell you, the more I fall in love with Jesus, the more this hurts. Just the thought of it, the thought of the only one who never deserved any suffering, who never did anything wrong, who was always gentle with even people who were the worst kinds of people or the people no one else wanted to be around. He was always had a word to say to them, always had time for them, always forgave sins and always invited others to follow him. He's the one we're going to put through this. Just doesn't seem right. And it doesn't get any better. All four crucifixion accounts refer to Jesus being thirsty in some way. Um, Luke's account is the briefest in this regard. Luke doesn't say Jesus doesn't say, I thirst, like he does in other gospel accounts of the crucifixion, but it did say, if you were reading with with me, that the soldiers offered him uh, wine vinegar or sour wine, or depending on which version or translation you were reading. The other uh, gospels give us more insights in how they would have offered the wine or vinegar or sour wine to Jesus while he's on the cross, and it was with a stick and a sponge. You remember this from other uh, times you've read through this probably. And it always sort of mystified me. It seemed odd and weird. Like, who brings a sponge to a crucifixion? What's the point of a sponge? And why would you have a sponge on the end of a stick? And it just never made sense to me. And this part is hard. I'm just going to tell you it's hard. But it's something that, um, that scholars are leaning toward more and more based on archaeological evidence. I didn't know about this until 2013 in the Holy Land. Now, to understand this, you need to know that when the Romans conquered a city, they made upgrades to each city they conquered to fit their expected sort of way of life. One of the things they would do is uh, take over theaters or large uh, gathering centers and make them into uh, communal latrines. And this is uh, uh, used to be a theater setting, amphitheater, um, and it had been converted into a public bathroom, and you see the the carving outs in the on the, on the seats and in the front of the seats and that 's where Romans in the first century world would sit and do their business with no stalls or anything seems really awkward to me, but this is uh, this was advanced um, plumbing in those days well here here we go. I'll just lay it out there for you. When they started excavating these ancient Roman latrines, they found placards and inscriptions on the walls of these latrines that would always refer to something like, please um, replace sponge when finished. Or there was, uh, there was some reference to a bathroom sponge that was used for cleanup in like personal ways, right? Y'all tracking with me? I don't want to say anything else about it. Okay, so you follow me, and then they would. When it says replace it, it the the implication is that there must have been some kind of a vase or a vat where they would put the sponge back after using it, and obviously it would need to be disinfected. And the Romans were big on disinfecting more than other cultures of the time, and so they would have disinfected with something common like wine or vinegar. Or wine vinegar or sour wine. And, um, you know, it took a while for historians and archaeologists to start to put this together, but it seems like the best explanation of the offering of a drink to Jesus is something like um, these sponges uh, on the ends of sticks, like this, these that they've uncovered in, around, around the Roman Empire. They're, these are calcified, obviously, relics but the most likely explanation is that the Roman soldiers had travel bags with them and took these disinfecting uh, disinfecting liquids and sponges on sticks with them wherever they went to work as Roman soldiers, and that's the only explanation for why they would offer Jesus a drink from a sponge on a stick. And anyone living in those days probably would have known it, and that's why they didn't go to the great length of explaining what's really happening. And we have often read this passage of them giving him a drink as though it was an act of compassion. And it was probably the the exact opposite of that. It was probably the most shameful and shameless thing they did to Jesus, aside from killing him, offering him sour wine from their Bathroom sponge. It's the insult of insults. The most striking thing besides that in my reading of Luke's gospel and his account of the crucifixion is probably how Luke, true to form, insists on highlighting the other people in the story. If you've been tracking with Luke as part of the story's journey through this gospel, you probably have caught on to a theme. Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, is very concerned about the outsiders, about the people no one else cared about very much. Luke gives more of a platform and stage to the women in Jesus' life than any of the other gospel writers do. Luke gives more of a voice to what you might call the oppressed or the, uh, those on the underside of society, let's say, those who really had it hard, outsiders. And why would Luke want to go to such great lengths to do that? Because he was also an outsider, the only Gentile who wrote any parts of the Bible, one of the first Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. Christianity was an exclusively Jewish movement in its inception And so Luke was an outsider looking in in the beginning. So it's going to be important for him to communicate and for himself to feel and remember that Jesus did not just come to save one sect of people, but he came to save the whole world. He came to make sure the whole world knows they're made in God's image, loved eternally by God and welcomed into this saving relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And so Luke is intent on making sure that everybody knows this. And I think that's why Luke gives such, a, such center stage to the two criminals beside Jesus. He gives them more attention than any of the other gospel writers do. And this is uh, the next part of this passage, and then we'll wrap up. Luke 23, verse 39 to 43 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not one day. Not a long time from now. Not at the resurrection even. He says today, you're going to be with me in paradise. He says this to a criminal who has no, as far as we can tell, no prior experience with the Christian movement. He has never been to a service or to one of Jesus's sermons. He's never been to a Bible study or a member class. He hasn't been baptized, for all we know. This man is a criminal, and he, he said it himself. He deserved his sentence. So a hardened, pretty serious criminal says something cool to Jesus on his supposed sort of deathbed and Jesus says listen I'm telling you today you'll be with me in paradise what I heard a preacher one time talk about this and how awkward the the meeting must have been when that criminal got to the pearly gates and the angels were there waiting for him and they were caught off guard because they're like what what are you doing here Right, and uh, he's like, I don't really know. I just, just died. <laughs> just thought I'd check things out. And and this preacher imagined these uh, this heavenly host of angels, sort of giving this this uh, you know unexpected guest in heaven's gates, uh, sort of uh, the rundown of questions that Christians often ask. Non Christians or new Christians, like uh, to to make sure they're qualified. You know, imagine the angels asking this man who had just died on the cross next to Jesus. "Uh, So, what are your thoughts on the doctrine of justification by faith? (laughs) I I don't know what that means. What do you think about the inerrancy of Scripture? Huh? I can't read. What about you know, controversial subjects? Where do you land on women preachers? And, and where do you land on you know, uh, gender and gender roles and sexuality and, and, uh, and all these uh, you know, abortion and, and, and uh, drag queen story hour? Where do you land on critical race theory? Like, look, I have no idea. So what are you doing here? What made you think you could come? And this preacher said, imagine that criminal looking at the angels and saying, The man on the middle cross told me I could come. The extent and reach of God's mercy in Jesus Christ is greater than you've probably ever conceived. And I know some of you might still have questions about why Jesus had to die, and I honor your questions, but I also would gently nudge back as someone who asked the same questions and looked for alternative ways of interpreting the cross other than like God's wrath being poured out on his only son i just couldn't that just seemed so unpleasant to me for years now maybe my rejection of that idea had more to do with my watering down the gravity of sin Maybe it's only in understanding from heaven's perspective that sin is a serious thing. So serious. This was the only way for God's own blood to be poured out. That's how serious sin is. That's how serious your sin is from heaven's perspective. Now, that's not the only thing this all means. There's something even better. That's the first part. But I've also realized as I've begun to really grasp the meaning and importance of the cross, is that if it's all true, and I believe it is, then I never have to be anxious again. I never have to wonder if it's possible for me or anyone I love to outsin. The grace of God. Because if God's own Son shed his blood as payment for sin, as payment for our debt, what debt could possibly overshadow that payment? What could be more valuable than the blood not only of the world's only innocent man, the blood of God himself And in figuring out Good Friday, in figuring out the cross, I have been set free from any anxiety or fear or lingering doubts about whether or not I'm really forgiven, because if Jesus died for me, and if I receive that grace, how could I ever outrun it? How could you? Let's pray. Lord, your servant Paul wrote that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us so that we might receive the promise of your Spirit through faith. Come, Holy Spirit. Wash over us. Be poured out in this room, Holy Spirit. Fill up this place. Fill up these people. Even if we have questions and doubts about you or this religion or ourselves, Lord, let us put all that aside and just be open to your loving spirit. We're done with tired religion. We're done with self-righteousness and being fake. Lord, we're finished with that. Tonight we have heard the truth about the cross, about your son, about his blood and what it means for us, and we're done with everything that falls short of that because that is everything that we need. Come, Holy Spirit, would you move in us and shake us up turn our world and our hearts and our priorities upside down until we're ready for Easter until we're ready to shout for joy, until we're ready to need the risen Savior. Lord, we thank you for the cross. Jesus, we thank you. In your sweet mercy, for your willingness to take that burden and that curse on yourself, unimaginable grace, unthinkable mercy, we receive it with gratitude. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.